Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, we've done so many shows about COVID that we've actually kind of amassed a large music library of COVID and pandemic-appropriate songs. This is going to be another show about COVID. It is triggered in part by the latest set of CDC guidelines, but I think also just sort of about the larger problems embedded in some of those guidelines and some of the other stuff that doesn't get talked about as much. You're also just going to hear, hear, for some regular, hear from some regular folks, regular folks who are associated with this show, about what it's like to grapple with the disease in your home. We'll talk about Paxlovid near the end. So before I introduce our two principal guests here uh, in, the, in the first segment, I just want to say that I want to take a moment to acknowledge the, the medical, the biomedical triumphs that have occurred in the last two plus years. I mean, we are so far ahead of where we were two years ago uh, in terms of what we can do with vaccines, what, what we can do with treatments, what we understand about mitigation and masks. I mean, there, there's a lot has been done to make COVID-19 a much less dangerous disease. And that is great. The development of the mRNA vaccines, the ramping up of them, it, it's going to occupy a place in medical history no longer, no, no matter how long medical history continues. But, and there's a big but, um, you can't really call this a success. There's a, if it's a success, there are a lot of failures Im, m- embedded somewhere in that success. So here to talk about that is uh, a frequent guest on the show, although we haven't talked to him in a while. It's Dr. Ulysses Wu, a system director of uh, infectious diseases and chief epidemiologist at Hartford HealthCare. Saad Omer, who's with us recently, professor of medicine and the epidemiology of microbial diseases at Yale and the director uh, of the Yale Institute for Global Health. So, um, Saad Omer, I'm going to start with you. Um, recently, the CDC revised its guidelines. Uh, we could go over them point by point, but they did seem to erase some of the distinctions between vaccinated and unvaccinated people in terms of what they can do and when they can return and how they can return after either exposure or infection. Um, it, it does seem as though both in tone and in substance, the CDC was descriptive rather than prescriptive. There, these guidelines look to a lot of people like what people are willing to do anyway, as opposed to what people probably should do. But, I, I, you know, the last time you were on, you were talking about the CDC. What was your overall reaction to the change? Look, I understand where they're coming from. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of us, especially those of us who have been working on infectious disease, epidemiology and disease control, etc., 
have a slightly different perspective. So it's a mixed bag. There are a lot of things that warrant a change, and the change um, has been entirely appropriate. Uh, but uh, you know, I see the rationale behind re- removing the distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated folks. But but I do think, um, at least at this point, uh, an ongoing distinction was warranted. Uh, because of the risks uh, associated with non-vaccination, because of the fact that we are approaching um, perhaps um, an increase in cases and potentially hospitalization starting in fall, etc. Uh, so um, I, I think uh, there should have been a distinction that, that that should have been maintained at least for the next few months. And, and Dr. Wu, how about you? I mean, maybe we could even build on what Dr. Omer just said, which is that, I mean, we're still having a little under 500 deaths a day. That's that's a 9-11 once a, every single week uh, of the year at, at that rate. This doesn't feel like a disease that's so under control that all the dials on mitigation need to be turned in a downward direction. Yeah, uh, first of all, I, I agree with everything that Dr. Omer said. And you're absolutely right. It's not a disease that is under control. But when you look at the social psychology of this disease, it is, you know, it is, uh, it, it doesn't exist as much anymore uh, to the general public perception. And that's why I think uh, it, a lot of this is reaction. And that the term that we've probably heard so many times living with COVID that maybe this is what the CDC is trying to pivot us to. But you're absolutely right. This is not a disease that is under control. And the analogy I've always said is in the winter, we came down from Everest and we've made it down to base camp. Well, base camp is still pretty freaking high. And we still got a lot of cases and still a lot of deaths and still a lot of hospitalizations that are still going on. And so what I'm seeing is sort of a disconnect between what is actually reality and what is actually uh, in the mindset of, of individuals. It, you know, Dr. Wu, even even the T- CDC's terminology, they consider you fully vaccinated if you've had two shots. I, I don't know many clinicians who feel that way. It feels as though, particularly as we moved into Omicron territory, that two boosters uh, plus your initial two vaccinations are really what's required to give you immunity. Uh, maybe you could say something about that. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good point. Uh, The reality is that part of the pivoting was, if you look at the reasoning, was because people have been infected and people have been vaccinated. But to your point, some of the people's last vaccination has been years, I mean, you know, over a year ago. And so I'm wondering when they're actually going to change the definition of what vaccinated actually means, because uh, in principle, it's more of a, a practice and an application, but when it comes to actual science and antibody response, uh, being fully vaccinated is very different from what they define. So, Dr. Omer, you know, there's uh, a lot of talk about people who feel either stranded or cold or something like that, and I just want to maybe sketch something out and have you comment on uh, comment on it. So, there's roughly seven to seven and a half million immunocompromised people. Those are people, most of whom cannot generate a response through vaccination or, or not an adequate response through vaccination. And let's say 
each one of those people has two people who don't want to bring the disease to them. So I, I'm in that category. My son is significantly immunocompromised. I'm very careful. I'm very careful for myself because I'm 67 years old and 20 pounds overweight, but I'm really careful for him. I, I don't want to bring him the vaccine. I'm, I'm part of his caretaking group. Uh, so now we're up probably getting close to 25 million people. And then we can list all the other people with significant risk factors, old age, asthma, obesity, diabetes, heart conditions. Now we got to be getting close to 100 million people. And as far as I can tell, both the public and private sector policies don't really seem to acknowledge a really large cohort of Americans who's, who can't afford to get this disease. I'm not even including the racial and economic component, the socioeconomic component that makes the disease more risky for people who live in impoverished communities, communities of color, places where maybe you're not going to be able to get Paxlovid when you need it. So I don't know. I feel like this is kind of an intellectual and moral failure, but I'd be interested, you know so much more about it. I'd love to hear what you, what you think. I think that's a, a, a moral shortcoming at a national level, not just at an um, sort of uh, in terms of just one institution or one agency. However, I think that's one thing that is uh, a bit positive in this, these updated guidances that CDC has articulated a little bit more clearly uh, the differential impact of uh, certain factors, uh, epi- certain epidemiological um, factors and certain preventive behaviors on immunocompromised individuals and their families. So I think that needs to be communicated more clearly, but that's a positive change. They have previously had recommendations for additional doses for immunocompromised folks, et cetera. But these guys, you know, this updated guidance actually does better um, in terms of um, identifying specific uh, additional measures for immunocompromised individuals. Which is good. but Which is very good. It is good. Although, you know, no person is an island. There's a way in which uh, Dr. Daniel Griffin, who's on This Week in Virology once a week, he always says, nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Uh, and and that kind of that sword cuts both ways. I mean, there really isn't a way to, unless immunocompromised people just stay in their house and everybody who knows them takes extreme precautions um, the people who have high risk factors, not just the immunocompromised, I mean, they're just part of the population. And, and it seems that without designing something, uh, and it wouldn't be hard to come up with some helpful public policy, without designing something, you are just putting them at risk. Absolutely. So I, I do think, so I am from the group that thinks that you don't have to have maximal public health interventions all the time. You can go up and down uh, based on the uh, based on various factors and based on the recognition that the general public may not be able to comply with all of the recommendations all the time. Having said that, specifics matter. Um, ending isolation without testing at five days is something that is not evidence based, um, or that is at least not supported by by evidence. So the solution is not, uh, you know, there are no, uh, you know, we don't have to have two extremes where we are doing nothing or doing uh, minimal effort versus doing everything or maximal effort and and sort of halting the society altogether. There are a lot of data-specific and data-informed solutions, like the example I just gave, that keep the rates uh, and, and more specifically the adverse outcomes associated with infection law uh, 
and that protect everyone, but specifically and particularly those who are more vulnerable, including immunocompromised individuals, um, uh, the elderly, and and uh, folks living in vulnerable communities. The the five day thing that you were just talking about at the time that these guide, new guidelines were released, Michael Minna, one of the real kind of testing gurus in America, published a chart saying. Actually, that's like peak shedding time. <laughs> it's five days. That's like the worst time to send somebody back out into the community. But um, so, Dr. Wu, and I apologize for kind of speed dating through a lot of these things, but we've got a lot of ground to cover, a finite amount of time. And I'm going to bring up what might be a semi-sensitive area, which is, boy, there are a lot of really great doctors terrific providers uh, in this country. I've had the fortune to be treated by people like that. But it does look like we are also living through a melange of over-prescribing, under-prescribing, under-prescribing, wrongly prescribing. I mean, even granting that this is hard. It's an unfolding situation. The playbook changes every week, it seems. You know, I mean, there's things like prescribing dexamethasone to patients who aren't in the secondary stage uh, of immune overreaction, which is pointless and possibly harmful and a waste of a resource, or providing Z-packs and uh, uh, prescribing Z-packs and other antibiotics for a virus, or just sort of not knowing about Paxlovid. We're underusing Evusheld, which is a terrific uh, uh, prophylactic treatment for people who are immunosuppressed. It's, people are starting to call it Evusheld because it's sitting on the shelf not getting used. And you're obviously an excellent doctor. This must be troubling to you. There's some way in which we haven't made sure that providers know what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I so <laughs> there there are multiple reasons for this, and I, I agree with everything that you're saying at this point. I mean, the reality is, even though this this pandemic has sort of ushered in, uh, you know, a golden era of how we go forward, how we get things approved, uh, the speed of vaccinology, all of these things are incredible and wonderful. But on the flip side, you're absolutely right. We have what I call, you know, Western frontier medicine, where there's a lot of shooting from the hip. And you gave some great examples. And look back to the very beginning. The, the hydroxychloroquine studies was based off of, I think, the first uh, initial giving of it was based off of seven patients. And Dr. Omer probably knows what I'm referring to. Seven patients in France that maybe their viral load was a little lower. And all of a sudden, everybody's getting hydroxychloroquine. Uh, ivermectin, still the same thing. Uh, we can talk about bleach. We don't really probably need to talk about bleach. But you're right. There needs to be some sort of standard empiric evidence. Um, but we also don't want to move at a snail's pace. And so somewhere we have to find that Goldilocks zone that's in between of this new golden era of rushing things through, but making sure that they're safe and that they're okay. Uh, Paxlovid has been a wonderful addition to our armamentarium, but as we'll probably talk about later, it's not without its own warts as well. Uh, you're absolutely right about Evusheld, something that... Um, and I, I not heard the term ever shelf before, but that's that's pretty accurate that it's it's not out there. So these things that are being offered, we do need to get out into the collective public consciousness to make sure that they are aware of it. Um, 
Dr. Omer, I don't know if you passed Dr. Iwasaki in the halls anywhere in New Haven on a regular basis, but um, one thing a lot of us are very interested in is uh, a nasal vaccine. I don't know whether that strikes you as a game changer with my limited understanding of the way that kind of COVID can get into the upper airways, even if it is blocked from going other places by our existing cohort of vaccines. A nasally administered vaccine sounds like a great idea. I mean, do you have any sort of sense how close we are to that? And, and does it strike you as a pretty significant game changer? Uh, absolutely. I actually not only pass uh, or like interact with Dr. Iwasaki, she's a friend and a frequent collaborator. And, and uh, I very much think that nasal vaccines are one of the approaches we need to be exploring uh, pretty seriously uh, in the future. I think we need and and we have needed for over a year um, Operation Warp Speed 2.0 with the same intensity uh, with which the first generation of vaccines were developed. We need the next generation of vaccines, uh, specifically those that target reduction of infection, not just severe disease. And so targeting uh, sites where the infection initially takes hold, uh, for example, respiratory mucosa, and delivering the dose directly there is one promising strategy. But that requires a concerted effort, and that requires the recognition that with Operation um, uh, Warp Speed, the original version, the taxpayers got a really high return on investment. And so with that in mind, we need to have public investments in the next generation of vaccines. And the reason I'm uh, you know, specifically identifying public investments in this, because the frontline companies, uh, for understandable reasons, it's in their interest to maintain the current um, set of vaccines because the development cost, et cetera, effort adds to their effort uh, where you know, with the current vaccines, they can uh, still uh, deliver a pretty decent product are a pretty good product for severe disease. But but it's in the taxpayers' interests that we have these investments in the next generation of vaccines, including nasal vaccines, but also uh, what, what are called pan-coronavirus vaccines that target uh, proteins that do not change uh, that quickly so that we can target all variants uh, at the same time. Right. There, by the way, speaking of that, this is not a vaccine, it's a therapy, but there's some news today. Uh, I'm calling it the Tolkien um, antibodies. Uh, this is announced by Harvard, I think, today, uh, that they, they believe they've developed an antibody that uh, is also pan-variant because it works on a part of the spike uh, protein that so far hasn't mutated, which also could be uh, a pretty big thing. Um, so, uh, Dr. Wu, as we're kind of towards the end of this particular part of the segment. Uh, and we should say Dr. Wu is going to stay with us for some of the future discussions here on, on today's show. Um, since I already know what the answer to the question is that you're going to give, it can be pretty short. But, you know, as you think about the future of this six months out, a year out from where we are now, what do you think you know about it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, this has been one of the most studied viruses uh, you know, I've been doing this for two, two and a half decades, and I, I can't remember a time that uh, that we knew so much about a virus and yet still knew so little about it. So what do I expect is going to happen in six months? I think there's still going to be advances, but we're going to start fine tuning a lot of those advances. But when it comes to really, uh, you know, you look at it from a medical standpoint, uh, us in the trenches, we're going to continue to treat. We're going to continue to take those advances. And we're going to continue to help our patients. 
But my my concern, I guess, again, lies with, um, you know, the society at large. How are they going to view COVID in six months? Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of people, they've told me they just wanted to go away. And I do agree with Dr. Omer in the fall. We're going to certainly see another swell spike, whatever you want to call it. And then will it go away again or will be, there be other variants? And what will be the damage and the collateral damage coming out of these spikes and swells every few months? Uh, that's what I'm most curious about. I'm not sure what the answer is, though. Right. We should just say that the public is a big part of this. And one of the reasons that we're essentially undervaccinated as a population in terms of that two booster status is because people aren't getting their first and second boosters for whatever reason. They're just not. Um, and they, they need to for themselves and for other people as well. All right. We have to say goodbye to Saad Omer. Uh, great to have him once again, professor of medicine uh, and the epidemiology of microbial diseases at Yale, director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Dr. Wu will stick around, but you're going to hear from some people whose names you probably recognize talking about their own experiences next. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we're back. So one aspect of what we wanted to do today diverges from talking to experienced clinicians and epidemiologists and journalists who cover things like a pandemic for a living, all those people. But also there's just the experience of regular people who have COVID in their lives and have things happen that they hadn't anticipated and don't always even really know what to do next. And it just so happens that three people connected to our show, two people who produce episodes and one person who oversees the show, have all had very similar experiences with COVID getting into their households almost certainly through the vehicle of their children. So joining us now is Jonathan McNichol, who's the producer of this episode, as well as many, many, many other episodes. Julia Pastel, freelance producer on our show and does lots of other things, CT Improv and Literary Disco Podcast. Katie Tularski is the big boss, senior director of storytelling and radio programming at Connecticut Public. And she's engineering this segment it's because I don't know where Kat is right now. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, I, this is like an all hands on deck kind of situation is what I'm telling you. 
So all three of you have had basically the same experience. I'm going to have you just quickly kind of thumbnail these things. Pants, why don't you go first? You were about to leave on vacation, and what happened? Yeah, it was the it was the day before we were supposed to fly to Florida, the first time we would have flown during the pandemic, the first time my son Simon would have ever flown in his life. But on the day before, he got a fever, and it got a little worse as the day went on, so I took him to the pediatrician. And he had tested negative at home for COVID, but he tested positive for COVID at the pediatrician's office. Uh, All right. So we'll we'll talk about what happened after that. You would have no way of anticipating anything like that happening, except for the fact that Katie Tularski, you had essentially the same thing happen, even with the same Florida destination a few months beforehand. That's right. So we were the same thing. We were heading to Florida the first time we were really traveling for a family trip since the beginning of COVID. So like had been planning this trip for months. Just everything in my life was looking forward to like being on the beach in Florida. And the day before our flight, my son Henry, who's four, had, I think he had a slight fever and a cough. And he had been, someone in his daycare had had it. So we tested him and he was positive and we just, just tears started coming. All of us were just crying because we were already packed. It was just horrible. So yeah. All right. So, and Julia, you actually managed to get on your vacation. Unlike these poor people yeah. who, were, who never heard the fate. starter pistol go off, you managed to get yeah. on your vacation. Yeah. Fate does not want people to go to Florida. That is what I'm learning. Uh, I went to Cape Cod and I had been warned by friends that they had gotten this latest strain outdoors, but we still tried to keep our activities outdoors. We went to a county fair and 36 hours later, my daughter, who hasn't napped in two years, asked to go back to bed at 9 a.m. And that's the second I knew. And we got the exciting flea vacation experience where we were already on vacation and then suddenly packed up and went home. So of my whole family, though, only I got sick. But as you guys can all hear, I am I'm still sick weeks later. So. Right. Awesome. Having kids is great. Yeah. That's- no, definitely the lesson here is take your children and leave them in the woods. Uh, they do it in fairy tales. They do this all the time. The children always are fine. They don't die. Usually a, a kindly, a kindly woodsman usually does something to help them. So leave your children in the woods and then just get on with your lives. So I guess maybe the next couple of questions are, I mean, one thing, Pants, that would be a very complicated thing to do would be to try to isolate oneself from one's three three year old. So yeah, but you must have had some thought of, wow, well the rest of the people would be great if we didn't get sick. What did you try to do about that? We yeah. So so Simon's pediatrician actually just said to me right off, don't even bother trying. He's three, it's not possible. But then I talked to my doctor and my doctor said, No, 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 absolutely try. You should not assume you're all gonna get it. Anything you do to try not to get it is better than not doing anything to try not to get it. So we spent like three days in the house, me and Katie, my wife and Simon, all wearing masks, trying to keep Simon wearing a mask, trying to keep him in one room with windows open and a fan blowing out. I read to him at bedtime in his bed with him wearing a mask. But then three days later, by three days later, Katie and I had tested positive. And right. so it was a big waste of time, I guess. And we took our masks off and closed the windows. Right. So, yeah. There are two different Katie's <laughs> in the story, so people should understand. Yes. Your wife Sorry. is also I'm not your wife. Yes. Um, so and and. Katie, same situation for you. You've got two kids and then there's two parents. And so I don't know. Did you even try 
to prevent the virus from getting the rest of you? Yeah, we, um, you know, I feel like we should be an example for people of what not to do um, <laughs> because we just threw our hands up. I think we were kind of depressed and we were like, there's no way we're going to try to isolate a four-year-old. So we just didn't even try. And we, I have a six-year-old daughter and we just went along life as normal within our house. So just breathing on each other, doing the normal things and took three days for me and my husband to get COVID. And I think my daughter might have been spared if we had tried to isolate because it took seven days for her to test positive. And I think in the future, I probably would have had maybe like me and Henry go isolate together and then my husband or, you know, just split it, split us up so that we could have at least tried. But it just made things stretch out, I think, for okay. longer. Right. You kind of wrecked my what would you do differently question that I was going to ask at the end here. But, yeah. but, but maybe you can think of something else. So and then, Julia, in your case, I don't know, you're on vacation. <laughs> there are some very lovely wildlife refugees <laughs> like up in the, up the Wellfleet area where you, you could have well, just left your child in the motel or something and gone Totally. There. I like where this is going. But um, there is a crucial <laughs> detail here that I have not brought up yet, which is when this happened, I was 35 weeks pregnant. So there's this really interesting COVID calculus that happens. It's like, okay, if I'm going to get it, should I just submit? Should I, like, is this a good time or a bad time? So this is only a couple weeks ago. So I was like, this is my basically last chance to get this and have everything be okay. So, I mean, I was on vacation. My kid was basically sleeping on my face. So I did give up. But a few months ago, my husband got COVID and he totally isolated and he had a luxurious two weeks in our bedroom and we did not get it. So there's always one parent that gets screwed, I think, that like, <laughs> has to take care of the kid with COVID and also has to help the other parent isolate. So, yeah, I got I got sick. We it was it was impossible. It was impossible for me not to get it. But now I'm I'm almost done and I'm feeling that like euphoria, like. Now I don't have to worry about it for a couple months. Yeah, I think in our preliminaries, you kind of compared this to one of these movies where somebody's running towards a door that's about to slam shut and yes. you either slide under it, which is going to be very difficult for you in your condition, or at least get through it before it clamps together. Yes, I have not given birth yet, so I'm pretty happy with myself, but it's it's been a nightmare. It's been a nightmare that I now think is funny. And that's pretty much the story of my life. Later, you will laugh at this. Hopefully, right. And maybe. if I may. Yes, please do. Um, here is my number one COVID moment that I will remember from this. So our vacation was ruined. So this past weekend, we're all tested negative. So we went up to Maine to try to salvage our vacation. So we're standing at like a, a seafood shack outdoors. It's like 90 degrees she gets a big soft serve cone and it starts to melt and there's like 30 people around us and i am a parent so what do i do i take the ice cream cone and i take like a huge lick of it to save her ice cream and she <laughs> looks at me and she screams i don't want your germs on this and then she turns to the crowd and goes she has COVID. No, no, no. <laughs> Thirty people, and they back away. It oh was God. a pure, a pure like I saw goody good with the devil level accusation, and it was so <laughs> humiliating. And I had to just address the crowd like yeah. I don't have COVID anymore, even though I still sound terrible. So please put down um, those stones that you're holding in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I regret like explaining to her 
COVID. <laughs> we should have just let her live through it. And then I could have had some level of dignity left, but right. it's all gone. Also, maybe stop with the Shirley Jackson bedtime stories. Uh, <laughs> come on. Too young. Never. Too young. Um, all right. So now we are going to kind of come to this, the, the the sort of takeaway moment, if there is one. And Pants, I'll have you uh, get us started on that. Is there, I don't know, was there anything you wish you'd done differently or something you wish somebody had told you or ways in which the kind of information climate that you were trying to master and understand betrayed you in some way or is this just something that happened yeah i mean there's multiple things there's i'm i'm now worried about the playground i think simon got a playground and the playground is the one thing that we've let him do as a kind of normal two and three-year-old during this whole time is go to the playground play with the kids have a good time so now i'm more worried about being outdoors than i was the other thing is i i kind of think i really didn't want to get sick i really wanted not to get sick but I kind of think the pediatrician was right. And I kind of think we should have just not bothered to try not to. It just turned Simon into this like other in our house, which was an ugly thing to feel around your three-year-old son. And I don't think I'd do that again. You know, my advice in terms of the playground, just a little inexpensive costume and then dog park. All right. Uh, (laughs) Just like make him look somewhat like a dog and then he can run around all he wants. Um, It's the it's the other kids that are the problem. So I don't know, Katie Tularski, how about you? Are there takeaways? Are there things you're kind of rethinking besides the one you already mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I there's a whole part of the story that I didn't mention, which is. Oh, yeah, we can talk about that. Right. Eleven days after Henry, my four year old tested positive, he was already negative on the PCR. He couldn't he woke up and he couldn't walk. He couldn't put any weight on one of his legs. And so long story short, it turns out he has he had something called toxic synovitis, which is caused by a virus. It can be any it doesn't have to be covid, it's any virus and essentially the virus causes inflammation in the hip joint and so he couldn't walk for 5 days. And that was a terrifying on top of us all having covid. Henry being kind of just like crawling around and we didn't know what it was. We took him to the Connecticut Children's Medical Center. We finally had, you know, heard stories from other parents whose kids had it and they were totally fine. And he's totally fine now, thankfully. But it was just this kind of cherry on top of our COVID experience that was, you know, quite terrifying. So that is something that I've been trying to tell parents about because it Again, I hadn't, I didn't know about it. It's, you know, so maybe I wouldn't have been so alarmed. But I think that was one thing. I think, again, trying to isolate so that maybe my daughter would not have gotten it. And then the important thing for us is that the day after we all kind of like came to terms with the fact that we weren't going to be able to go on our trip, I immediately rescheduled the trip so that we had something to look forward to. Because I think, you know, we've just been in this long dragging just experience for years and just having those things for your family to look forward to, to go on trips to, even if it's a weekend, you know, road trip or whatever it is, I had to have something for us to like a happy thing to look forward to. Cause that was a really, that was like two and a half weeks of us just in our house in, <laughs> in hell. Um, yeah. And I'll say for people yeah. with COVID, like it took us a good month to really recover, to feel yeah. well, you know, just to, to mm-hmm. for people to rest, to not try to rush back to, to work or to whatever it is, because it you really need to let your body heal. 
Right. Before we go to Julia on this, I just want to say this whole conversation is kind of a subset of the larger conversation, which is what do you do about these things? The CDC seems to essentially be saying you figure it out on your own. Either you can sort of live with it just the way that maybe you live with a three-year-old who will probably infect you, or you can take precautionary measures, or I don't know. We, we don't, it turns out we don't know that much about controlling diseases, so you guys figure it out, which is not great, obviously. Um, so, Julia, how about you? I mean, You've got so much going on right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are all kinds of lessons just percolating through your, your brain. Honestly, I think that for me, the COVID story is like, how do you do everything you can to prevent getting sick without developing an anxiety disorder, basically, you know, and giving anxiety to your kids? Right. And, you know, I'm sounding very like easy breezy about this, but my whole family did avoid it for two years. So we try to thread the needle of, you know, be safe, understand the actual science and make decisions, but still stay calm. So I think for us, like that was a good takeaway is we did sort of try to have have a fun family time even when we were sick and be kind to each other and take care of each other. But as far as preventing getting it, you know, we're still going to try to prevent it. We're still going to be taking our rapid tests before we go back out into the world and all that stuff. But it does feel like it's going to be with us for a long time. So we're trying to turn down the temperature of how much we freak out every single time more exposed. All right. right. I I can tell you that that was pre-recorded. We did that yesterday, Uh, but we wanted to play it for Dr. Ulysses Wu, uh, System Director of Infectious Diseases and Chief Epidemiologist at Hartford HealthCare. I have a specific question I'm going to ask you, but do you want to just sort of react in general to any one or two things that you heard in there that are worth commenting on? Yeah, first of all, I, I am... I want to say that I'm so happy that everybody is, for the most part, almost back to normal or back to normal. And, you know, early on in the pandemic, these stories were not as as good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, there was more uh, morbidity, there was more mortality. And, and I don't know if the virus has changed, and we can probably spend another hour on the nature of the virus and what's changed with that. But I'm glad that we are at a point where um, that people have recovered and that I, I think the comment was that we can look back and maybe laugh on it um, uh, because the stories are so much more positive. Um, early on in the pandemic, uh, actually it wasn't that long ago, but I think the most sobering statistic I heard was um, at least 200,000 American children have lost at least one or two parents to COVID. And I think that's decreased since, but uh, that's that's an amazing statistic. And in terms of what everybody was trying to do or not to do, that's it's 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 exactly what the stories that I've been hearing that some have just sort of given in to this ocean that is crashing over you and you'll just let the ocean take you and see what happens. And then others, you know, try to try to swim, swim against the tide and 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 go against it. And from a medical professional standpoint, and we can talk for the reason uh, there's a lot of different reasons why I would still say try to avoid it. Uh, Don't give in. Do your best to try to uh, quarantine, to isolate yourself for a multitude of reasons, whether it's staving off long COVID, whether it's not giving it to somebody else. Um, But I'm I'm just actually happy to hear these stories because 
it, early on, there wasn't a lot of positive stories that we heard. True. One specific question I wanted to ask you, and I'm not expecting a dispositive answer because, as you said at the beginning, at the end of the first segment, you know, we've studied and studied and studied this disease, but it has this bad habit of changing what it does, um, and and it just makes it difficult, and it's hard to walk across a bridge while you're building it too, which is essentially biomedically what we've been doing since March of 2020. Um, Two of those three families believe that their children had their infection moment outdoors. Outdoors is a place that most people kind of rely on as a safe space. I don't know whether we know enough about the viral kinetics specifically of BA5, uh, uh, but is there some sense in which outdoors, in, in your mind, isn't, well, nothing's ironclad, obviously, but is it reliable enough? I actually do believe it is reliable enough. And where we where we lapse is actually we take too much comfort in the fact that we are being outdoors and we become very binary about it in the sense that COVID doesn't, uh, it's not going to impact us. I do believe that indoor transmission is a magnitude uh, higher risk of transmission as compared to outdoor, but outdoor is not exactly foolproof. And there are situations in outdoor transmission where it certainly can happen. There are other times where people have attributed to outdoors, and I'm not saying this for the for the stories that we just heard, but they actually acquired it indoors because outdoors, they remember in their collective consciousness that they were around a lot of people. And this must have been where I got it. But this is such an extremely contagious disease that it only takes a momentary lapse in unmasking or coming in contact with somebody for 15 minutes that they could have gotten it indoors. So I'm not saying they didn't get it outdoors, but if I had to choose, pick my poison, I'd rather be outdoors than indoors. All right. So Dr. Wu is going to stay with us for the final segment, which is very Paxlovid specific. We'll do that. Uh, Let's take a break right now. All right, time to say some thank yous. Let's start with Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, keeping the whole thing rolling and running. Uh, the episode has been produced by Jonathan McPants. You can uh, send us emails about why I addressed him as pants uh, during that entire tape segment. Uh, and I think there's been some help by our newly married senior producer, Lily Tyson or Lily Weinberger Tyson. I'm, we don't even know her name anymore. But anyway, I think she uh, jumped in here today. She's, it's her first day back from getting married. So that's exciting. All right. So Dr. Ulysses Wu is still with us. Uh, and now joining us uh, is um, Rachel Gutman Way, a senior associate editor at The Atlantic, someone who's been doing an awful lot of writing uh, about Paxlovid. Paxlovid, uh, right now the most effective treatment, uh, at least pill-based treatment, uh, or sort of non non antibody type treatment for uh, for COVID nineteen. So, uh, Rachel, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Maybe just begin by for people who just haven't kept up with this, r- reminding us all what Paxlovid or Paxlovid gets pronounced two or three different ways. Paxlovid, uh, what it is? For sure. Um, 
I have settled into Paxlovid, but every so often I'll slip and say Paxlovid instead. Um, it is an antiviral pill made by Pfizer. It's, it's really a set of pills. It's a combination of two drugs called nermotrelvir and ritonavir that put them together, three pills per dose, uh, two doses a day for five days. If you have a high risk of severe COVID and you get COVID and you take these pills, there is a decent chance that you will not end up in a hospital if you might have ended up in a hospital otherwise. That's right. the long and short of it. That's a good good long and short of it. I mean, when we say decent chance, uh, the number I'm familiar with is a 90% reduction, uh, which is almost a better than decent chance. Yeah. So the interesting thing about the 90% reduction is that is based on Pfizer's original sort of arm of its clinical trials, which was conducted in unvaccinated high-risk people. So the risk reduction profile in that specific group of people is fantastic. The risk reduction profile in anybody who has been vaccinated or is maybe not super high risk, it gets a little more complicated. All right. And so, Dr. Wu, obviously, you're out there on the front lines. I assume you are prescribing a lot of doses of of Paxlovid. Yeah, that is actually true. We are definitely uh, prescribing a lot of it. And the best thing about it is that it is an oral formula uh, formulation that really we didn't have that luxury before, uh, especially in the outpatient arena. Everything before Paxlovid was uh, an infusion of, of a monoclonal antibody. So this was a game changer in the sense that uh, this and molnupiravir were the first two that we could orally prescribe and that people could get at pharmacies. So, Rachel, uh, a lot of people have taken it. A lot of people have also famously experienced what is either accurately or otherwise described as the Paxlovid rebound. We saw President Biden get that. We saw Dr. Fauci uh, get that. Maybe just quickly clue people in on what it is we're talking about. Absolutely. Paxlovid rebound or COVID rebound um, happens to some people. We don't know exactly how many after taking Paxlovid. So you have COVID. You take Paxlovid, you feel better, and then two to eight-ish days later, you might start feeling sick again, or you might actually test positive again. So it's taking the pill, feeling better, and then sort of having a rebound back to a state where you have an active infection. Right. And and just to stay with this for a second, because uh, I want to hear from both of you about this, but uh, Rachel Gutman-Way, one of the, there are many questions about this, including, is this essentially the natural history, the, the property of the virus itself manifesting itself? And there are some studies that indicate that people who don't take Paxlovid also have a rebound. Right. This has been really interesting to see. Um, one of the most helpful studies that I've seen compared people who take Paxlovid to people who take molnupiravir, and they found that the rebound rates between both of them were essentially the same, and it was around 6%. It didn't compare it to a placebo, though, so we can't necessarily like draw perfect conclusions from that. And that's really the crux of it, you know, is, is Paxlovid actually causing the rebound, or is it something about maybe the BA5 subvariant that's making more people rebound than did during clinical trials? There's all sorts of things that could be at play here. And, and Dr. Wu, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I do believe that the rebound not only happens with Paxlovid, but uh, as was indicated, Molnupiravir, and as you had indicated, people who had not gotten any therapy, there has been reports of rebound. And then one of the other medicines that we give, which is the Bebtilovimab, or used to be Citrofimab, the monoclonal antibody, people have rebounded from that as well. There's a lot of theories, a lot of hypotheses. Uh, it doesn't explain the people that didn't get any ther therapies, but the thought is that if you do get your therapy very early on, your immune system didn't have a chance to respond uh, and build up the appropriate antibody levels uh, that would be necessary. And that's where the rebound comes from. But I think there's still a lot needs to be studied about this. So, Rachel gutman Way, one of the things that has been bandied about, and I think we, we are ramping up towards a study, you, you're much more up to date on this than I am, uh, of just a longer dose. What if you took Paxlovid not for five days, but for seven to 10 days? You would think, I mean, we've been talking about rebound for three months now. And there's like 50,000 doses of Paxlovid being doled out every day. You'd think this would be a pretty easy thing to study. How close are we to looking at that? Yeah, that's, uh, it's such a hard and in some ways frustrating question, but research just takes a long time. Um, one of the researchers who I spoke with for my last article had started talking to colleagues at the very beginning of the year about studying rebound and Paxlovid, and they didn't get approval from their institutional review board until last month. So it just, it takes a long time. Pfizer is running a trial either soon or very soon in immunocompromised folks that's testing 5, 10, 15 day courses. That's still listed as not yet recruiting on clinicaltrials.gov, which is the government website that tracks all these things. You know, it's possible that they just haven't updated that, but it, that still indicates that we're not going to get results for quite some time. Um, Dr. Wu, we're running out of time here, but one thing I would assume that you would say would be, okay, let's say that you're, you've got a COVID infection, you take Paxlovid, there's a successful suppression of symptoms, then they come back in the, that rebound form. I assume that person should, should assume that he or she is shedding at that point, right? You, you probably have to treat yourself as a potentially infectious patient at that point. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. They are contagious. And the benefit of the Paxlovid is really to keep them out of the hospital with that first go around. But they are contagious the second go around. But from what I understand, the uh, mortality associated with the rebound uh, is almost zero from what I understand. There may mm -hmm. be cases out there. Um, and so the biggest consequence of that is reinfecting somebody else at that point. So, Rachel, probably the last question of the show, but from what you can see looking into the future, I mean, it also kind of makes sense that these drugs might be used in more of a cocktail form at some point. If, in fact, Paxlovid has some limitations, whatever they may be, it make, would make sense to combine. I realize it's already combined, but to combine it even more. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a virologist or an expert in pharmaceuticals, but from the folks I've spoken to, um, that same researcher who was working on a rebound study is particularly hopeful that we will um, have a combination in a cocktail at some point. Um, basically, if you have a virus that you're treating with an antiviral that's capable of mutating at a fairly high rate, as we have seen that COVID can do, treating it with just one antiviral is more likely to lead to resistance. And treating it with a cocktail 
could help to avoid that resistance, um, prevent it from developing or sort of kick the can down the road and keep it from developing for a long time from now. The other thing is it's possible maybe that a cocktail could help with um, with rebound and make rebound less common. We just don't know and we won't know until we try it. Right. So we have to stop there. Rachel Gutman-Way is an senior associate editor at The Atlantic. Dr. Ulysses Wu is System Director of Infectious Diseases, Chief Epidemiologist at Hartford HealthCare. Thank you all for listening. I know this stuff is complicated, but thank you for listening, for caring, for taking care of yourselves, and especially for taking care of other people. Yes, I'm the father of a son who is immunosuppressed, but I think I'd be saying this anyway. We Nobody's safe until everybody's safe. Uh, and so take care. Take care of yourselves and of other people.